Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome again to RUF. I'm really thankful that you're here. You braved the, um, the thin layer of you're about to fall on your butt on the sidewalk on the way here. Um, and uh, just appreciate that you took the time out of your busy schedules to be with us on this Wednesday evening. Um, at the heart of tonight's passage, I never know how to do this. At the heart of tonight's passage is a question. It's a simple question, but it has a really complex answer. And the question is this, who are you? Really simple question, really complicated answer. Who are you? The reason that it's complicated is psychologists say that there's at least two facets to answering this question, who are you? Um, The first facet is your sense of self. This is the, the part of you that is true in every setting. So we all navigate lots of different spheres all the time, right? You navigate your home life, your school life, your work life, your family, your friends. There's a, there's a you that's you in public, and there's a different you that's present when you're in private. There's a you that's you during midterms, and then there's a you that's you that's different during spring break. Uh, there's a you online, there's a you in person, there's a you on Instagram. There's a you on your Instagram account. Yes, I know about those. Um, there are all these different spheres that you navigate, right? And, and it seems like yourself is sort of changing when, when you step into a different world. And what psychologists say is the true self is the one that's beneath that, the one that doesn't shift or change from place to place, from time to time, from day to day, from circumstance to circumstance. That's yourself, right? That's aspect number one. Aspect number two is your sense of worth, your sense of worth. Like, why does this particular self matter? Because it's one thing to know yourself, and it's another thing to actually appreciate who you are, to like who you are, to to be settled in who you are. What about you makes your life worthwhile and good and significant? That's the question of worth. And these two things together of self plus worth make up your identity. And getting meaningful and durable And life-giving answers to this identity question is really difficult, but really important. And one of the reasons that it's really important is because in Western culture, and particularly in New York City, we have elevated the time that you spend in college as the time to get an answer to the question, who are you? It's the time to find yourself, to discover yourself, to figure out who you are. Um, And and for, for a lot of you, it's why you came to New York City, to find yourself, to find your calling, and then to be equipped to go and live that out for the rest of your life. And you feel like, okay, if I do that well, then I will be happy, and I will contribute to making the world a better place. And if I do not do that well, then I will be unhappy, I'll be on the wrong path, Uh, I might be what's wrong with the world, I'll be letting myself down, or my family down, or my community down. So the question is, how do we get a good answer to our identity? How do we get a good answer to the question, who are you? That's what our text tonight is about. So let's read together. 
from Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. By the way, we are, it's been a few weeks since we've been able to look at this series, but we're um, picking up the second week in a series uh, through the book of Daniel that we'll be doing up from now until spring break. So we're going to look right at the very beginning of the book, Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's uh, ask for his help as we look at it tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to be present with us through your word. um, And that he would bear witness to us about your son, Jesus. And that as we hear about Jesus, our hearts would come alive. That we would see... Um, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, how beautiful, how believable, how trustworthy and true he is. It's in Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. So there's a few different ways in our culture that we try to answer this question of who are you. The first way, one of the first ways that we do it is we look outside of ourselves. Look outside of ourselves to try to answer the question, who am I? And what that means is we're, we're rooting our identities in the roles that other people bestow upon us, the roles that are given to us. This is, this is the way that often a lot of traditional societies, a lot of Eastern societies think about and process the question of identity. It's a very communal way to think about identity. And so in, in this sort of way of thinking about it, the self is a role that you play or maybe even a set of roles that you play. So you're a daughter or a son Um, You're a sister or a brother, you're an employee, you're a student, you're a friend, you're an aspiring artist, you're an activist, you're the smart one, you're the beautiful one, you're like, there's all these roles that you play. That's your sense of self and your sense of worth comes from, okay, am I actually fulfilling those roles well? Am I, you know, if, if one of your selves that you're inhabiting is a student, you're always sort of calculating and asking yourself, am I, am I working hard enough? Are my grades good enough? Am I involved in enough things? Am I doing enough things? If one of your roles is to be a child, then you're asking yourself, am I meeting my parents' expectations? Am I using the opportunities that they've given me well? We're, we're always calculating whether or not we are fulfilling the roles that we've been given. So we're always wondering, am I successful enough? Am I funny enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I creative enough? Am I good enough, right? So that's the sort of, the first way is looking on the outside 
of the roles that we inherit from the people around us, the community around us. The second way is not the outside, but the inside. That we root our identities in our desires, like in this deep-seated desire that we have. So the true self is not a role that is assigned to me by my society, by my community, but my true self is my, my inner desires. So this is sort of the, the modern Western individualistic way of thinking about identity, of, of answering the question of who are you. I saw a great example of this a couple of years ago. I was walking around Soho, and there was this huge billboard on the side of one of the buildings for Zico, which I think is a coconut water company. I have no idea if they're actually still in business. But it was this massive mural uh, of Jessica Alba sitting, looking happy, drinking Zico water. And the phrase that was on the billboard, all it said was, all that is within you is all that you need. And then there was a hashtag to it, hashtag inside is everything. It's a great example of this, this sort of modern Western way of thinking about our identity, that all that is within you is all that you need. Nothing else matters. What's inside you is everything. Everything else is nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And so the true self is your, is your inner self, your inner desires. And your worth in this, in this way of thinking does not come from whether or not you're fulfilling your roles, but whether your desires are becoming fulfilled, whether your desires are being met, whether you are happy. That is a life that's worth living. Now, there are a number of different problems with this. The first problem with this is that um, our desires are not streamlined. Like they're not all headed in the same direction. In other words, our desires inside us, if we really do a deep dive into our own heart and our own soul, our desires are all, always conflicting. Like many of you in this room have these two conflicting desires. You have this really, really good desire to be very successful at what it is that you're trying to do whether that's music or fashion or activism or whatever it is that you're trying to do. And you have this other competing desire, also a really good desire, to not be crushingly lonely in your life. And these two things are really against each other a lot. Because if you want to be really, really successful at what you're doing, you're going to have to say no to hanging out with friends all the time. But if you really, really want to not be lonely, you're going to have to say no to rehearsing or to studying just two hours more or whatever it is, right? These desires that you have are in conflict with one another. So which one of those is the real you? Which one of those is really who you are? See, it's not enough to just look inside and be like, oh, that's who I am, because our desires are in conflict. The second thing is is that our inner desires alone are not self-validating. Like, we cannot have a sturdy, stable sense of self without validation from the inside. Life just doesn't work that way. Think about it this way. If you went to a university that was not accredited, And they were just handing out degrees willy-nilly. And they were like, well, you know what? We don't really believe in the accreditation process. We don't need validation from the outside. We're just going to sort of, we're going to do our own thing. We think we're good enough, and that's great, right? No one would want to go and get a degree from that university because that's not how it works. You have to have validation. You have to have accreditation from the outside, and it works the same way on the personal level. If you knew a person who all of their friends were like, Listen, we love you and you have serious problems. You are a monster to people. Like you treat everyone else horribly. If that person responded and said, well, you know, literally everyone in my life says that I'm a monster, but I believe in myself and I love myself and that's enough. We would say there's something wrong with that person. It doesn't work that way. Our our lives just don't, they cannot validate themselves. Our desires can't validate themselves. So we have these two ways of thinking about identity. One is by looking from the outside, trying to fulfill a role. The other is by looking inside, trying to fulfill a desire. And both of them have a problem. But the main problem with both of them is that neither one ever ends. 
neither one ever ends, that you actually never get a verdict from either one of those. You'll always be asking the question, did I fulfill my roles enough? Did I fulfill my desires enough until, the, until your last days? Did I live a life that matters? You'll never get a verdict to that. That is a project that will never end, which means that you move through life never actually having a stable, durable sense of identity a stable, durable, lasting answer to the question, who am I? Because both of these ways of achieving identity are just that. They're ways of achieving identity. They're ways of trying to earn an identity by what you do, which means you can never stop if you want to have a self. But Daniel, here in this passage, has something much different, something much more durable, something much more life-giving. Now, how do we know that? We know that because literally every aspect of Daniel's identity was stripped away from him violently. Look at verse 1. His hometown, Jerusalem, the only home he's ever known, is attacked. This is how the book of Daniel begins. Daniel's life turned upside down. His hometown is attacked, ransacked, turned upside down. Verse 2 says, not only is it attacked, but the king, Jehoiakim, who's like the leader of his people, gets hauled off by these attackers into a foreign land and not just the king but also all the the sacred objects of worship that like belong in the temple those are carted off as well and placed in the temple of a foreign god which is like this great um basically in the ancient world it's like a way of giving a middle finger to a, a foreign god is to take their like sacred objects and put them in your own temple As if to say, my God is better than your God. And in the ancient world, your culture and your God, your religion, your identity, all those things were wrapped up together. And so right away in the first two verses, Daniel's life has been turned upside down. He's experienced utter humiliation for his people, for his government, for his king. Um, He's being oppressed by this foreign uh, group that's coming in and trying to take away his culture. And then verse uh, verse 3 through 5 says, listen, it's not just that these other things have been carted off and taken away. Daniel himself has been taken away from the only home he's ever known. He's taken away from Jerusalem and put in the city of Babylon. And not only is he put in that city, but he's placed in the king's palace, verse 4 tells us. He's not just placed in the palace, verse 5 tells us he's placed in the king's university. Uh, Read uh, indoctrination program there. Um, To be re-educated, to be reculturated. Because what he's, what's going on there is he's being taught to despise his own culture and praise some other culture. That's what it's talking about in verse 4 when it says that he's being taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. This is a, a completely foreign culture that was opposed to his own culture that he grew up in. And then in verse 5 it says that the whole point of this whole exercise is to get him fit, to get him ready to stand before the king. Which doesn't just mean that he's going to like stand before the king and the king's going to be like, Cool, nice to meet you, Belteshazzar. No, the point is for him to actually serve in the king's house. For him to be a slave of this foreign king, to serve and honor him alone. Even if that meant destroying and abandoning his own culture, his own home. But not only that, in verses 3 and 7, it's mentioned that Daniel is under the care of the chief of eunuchs. A eunuch is someone who's been castrated. It's pretty common in ancient cultures if you went and conquered another people group and you took some of them as your own slaves or your own servants, that you would castrate um, the males so that if they served in the king's house, they were not a threat to try to go and sleep with uh, the king's wives, the king's concubines. 
And so a lot of scholars think that this is what happened to Daniel. He's in the care of the chief of eunuchs, which meant that probably everyone underneath that eunuch was also castrated. So Daniel's sexuality has been brutally altered, stripped away from him. And then verse 6 says that his name has been changed as well. That might not mean much to us, but in the ancient world, your name really was the the seat of your identity. Um, Daniel's name meant God is my judge. His new name, his Babylonian name, meant Baal, protect the king. In other words, it doesn't have anything to do with the Israelite God. It has to do with uh, this Babylonian God. And now every time when Daniel's name gets called every morning in roll call at university, he's being reminded, you're not at home anymore. You have a new identity. You have a new self. Baal, protect the king. It wasn't just Daniel. His friends had names that meant things like Yahweh is my help. Yahweh has been gracious And their names were changed to things that honored other Babylonian gods like servant of Nebo or command of Aku. Literally every aspect of Daniel's identity is stripped away. Uh, Any role that he would have hoped to fulfill, any desire that he would have hoped to fulfill is robbed of him. His family, his hometown, his country, his job, his future, his sexuality, his food, his religion, his name, everything is taken away from him violently. And yet... Verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved. He resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. What's going on there? This is remarkable. This is amazing that Daniel, having suffered all of these things, does not just throw up his hands and say, fine, I will become whoever you want me to become. Just make it stop. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He plants his foot, he draws a line, and he resolves He resolves not to be defiled, not to be corrupted. And the reason he does that is because he has a self. He has an identity that is deeper than all the wrongs that have been committed against him. That is deeper than all the things that have been stripped away from him. And he wants to honor and protect that identity. And somehow participating in this aspect of his reculturation of eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine was going to jeopardize that. And so he said, enough, I'm not going to do it because I have something deeper something truer about me, and I don't want to put that at risk. Now, what is that thing? What is that identity? Well, in Daniel chapter 6, a little bit later, Daniel's in another crisis moment. You may be familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel is, it's a different king now uh, in Babylon, but this is sort of the same uh, methods of oppression And Daniel is supposed to bow down and pray to that king only. He is unwilling to do that. And so they're going to throw him to his execution in the lion's den. And in this moment of crisis, Daniel is referred to as the servant of the living God. The servant of the living God. That even though every circumstance in his life says that God is not living and active, And that if he is, he's definitely not for Daniel. He's definitely not on Daniel's side. Daniel understands something deeper and more true than his own circumstances. He knew better than to use his own circumstances as the measure for God's care and love for him. We get a hint of this in verse 2. If you notice, I don't know if you notice, but like the way all the verbs work, the one who is doing most of the acting, most of the action in this passage is King Nebuchadnezzar. Except in verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is Daniel who wrote this. See, what Daniel understands is, while from the world's perspective, it looks like this is King Nebuchadnezzar imposing his will upon 
um, the Jewish people. What's actually happening is God is in complete control. It's like two different camera angles on the same scene. From one angle, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. But from another angle, Daniel understands that it is the Lord who's doing this. The passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, Jeremiah 29, is very clear, even more explicit than this. Repeatedly, it says that it is the Lord who is sending the Israelites into exile, not to harm them, but to make them prosper, to give them a future and a hope. Do you remember that? To, to, to cause them to flourish. And Daniel, in the midst of all of this, this, this pain, in the midst of all of this suffering, is not crushed. Because he has rooted himself, he has rooted his identity, not in what his circumstances say about him, but he's rooted his identity in what God's word says about what's going on. Daniel understands Jeremiah 29. Daniel understands the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. The story of Joseph at the very end of, of Genesis, Joseph is... Um, is, is beaten and left for dead by his brothers. He's eventually found, he's sold into slavery, all sorts of terrible things happen to him. At the very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, Joseph gets the opportunity to come face to face, face with his brothers. The same brothers who beat him and left him for dead. And this is what Joseph says. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, what, what, what Joseph understood, what Daniel understood, is that their identities were rooted not in the roles that they were going to fulfill. For Daniel, all of those were taken away. Their identities were not root, rooted in, in desires that they might fo- find fulfillment from. Opportunity for so many of those was taken away. Their identities were not rooted in anything that they could achieve or earn and therefore lose. They were rooted in something, something different, something received, something given. What Daniel understood is that he belonged as a gift of pure grace to the living God who loved him and was for him. He, he had a self, he had an identity a sense of worth that wasn't crushed or undone by unspeakable suffering because he knew that he was a child of God. And he knew that from God's word. Uh, It's Black History Month. And one of the most brilliantly shining examples for the church of how to endure, how to embody this, this deep identity as a child of God in the midst of unspeakable suffering is that of African people enslaved in the United States. There's a scholar uh, by the name of Howard Thurman. He's an African-American man, uh, scholar at Boston University like 70, 80 years ago. And he gave this really famous lecture at Harvard. And um, in that lecture, he was talking about these African-American spirituals, the, the songs that these enslaved people had, had sung, uh, basically their, their Christian worship songs. And he was engaging this criticism that these songs were too otherworldly, that they were too, too much about heaven and too much about the world to come and crowns and thrones and the robes that they were going to wear when Jesus came back. And people, people were critiquing these and saying, listen, the, this, these songs about this other world, this other future world actually made these enslaved people more submissive and more docile and less engaged with the horrors and the reality of this world um, and the injustice of it. But what, what Thurman argues is that this, this sung faith in these songs deepened their capacity for endurance. 
It didn't lessen it. It didn't deaden it. It actually deepened it. This is, this is what he says. He says, it taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that, that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush which enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm a terrible right to live. See, they had this deep hope in their identity as children of the living God, and that is the thing that gave them endurance. Now, how do you get that? How do you get that kind of hope? How do you get that kind of rich, life-giving, durable identity? Well, many, many centuries before... Those people were enslaved many centuries after Daniel suffered all of these unspeakable things at the hands of the Babylonians. Jesus of Nazareth was also stripped of his identity. Jesus was stripped of his identity in the midst of unspeakable suffering, and that suffering was not without a purpose. It, it, was, it was actually to make it possible for Daniel and for you and for me and for all kinds of people in this world to become children of the living God, because you and I are not naturally We are not by nature children of God. What the Bible actually teaches is that we are by nature objects of his wrath. That what we deserve by our nature is not to be called his children, but we deserve his judgment. We deserve his justice. And Jesus is the opposite, right? Jesus, by his very nature, is the child of the living God. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, not deserving of the wrath of the father, but deserving of the delight and the love of the father. And on the cross, switch. On the cross, he traded places with us all throughout the gospels. Jesus refers to God very intimately as father, Abba, daddy. But when Jesus is on the cross, he's drawing his last breaths. And one of the last thing he says, things he says before he dies is not, my father, my father, but my God, my God. It's been depersonalized. There's now distance where there never was distance before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening here? Jesus is being stripped of his self as the father's son. He's losing the father's face. He's losing the Father's love. He's losing the Father's joy. And he's being swallowed up by the Father's judgment for sin. And the reason that he is doing that is so that you and I could be swallowed up into the Father's love, that we could actually be called children of the living God. The the instant, the very moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you have a new identity. The old life is gone. The new identity has come. And your sense of self is no longer something that needs to be achieved. It is something that is received, is given to you. You are a beloved, adopted child of the living God. You are as righteous before the Father as Jesus is. You are as secure before the Father as Jesus is. You are as prized by the Father as Jesus is. You are as accepted and validated and enjoyed by the Father as Jesus is. You are as loved by the Father as Jesus is. Think about that. That is who you are. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, all that becomes yours. That's your sense of self. And your sense of worth is not something that is earned, but it's something that is given. I mean, how precious are you to him that he sent his only son to die to make you his own and that that son willingly came to do just that? 
I know that there are a lot of ways that we are tempted to answer the question, who are you? Careerism says that you are your success, your wealth, your power. Resumeism says that you are your accomplishments. Romanticism says that you are what that boy or that girl thinks about you. Parentsism says that you are what your parents think about you. Failureism says that you are your failures, that that is the truest thing about you. Circumstantialism says that you are your circumstances, the way that you know whether or not God loves you and whether or not you're living a life that is worthy of being lived is how good or bad your life is going. The list goes on and on. What Christianity invites us into is something much more beautiful and something much more free. Because when you are a beloved child of the living God, what that means is that you can actually look at your career. You can look at your resume. And you can say, you are great. You are worthy of being pursued. You are important. But you are not who I am. And therefore, I can have success and I can have failure. And that is not going to make me or break me. You can pursue, uh, you can pursue challenges that you never thought possible. Because it's not going to make or break you. You can take risks. You can look at your parents. And you can say, I love you. But what you say about me is not who I am. And I will work hard to honor you. But what you say about me is not going to send me to the heights or to the depths. And what that actually does is it sets you free to love them for who they are. Because most of your parents really love you, but they're imperfect. What that means is that you can look at your boyfriend or your, your, your girlfriend and, and you can say, having you does not give me life and therefore losing you will not take life away from me. And that sets you free to love them sacrificially or to walk away if it's unhealthy. You can look at your circumstances and know that there is something truer and deeper than what they say about where you stand. That God's word speaks more truly about who you are and what he thinks about you than your circumstances. If you're here tonight and you are a Christian, do you remember that? Do you remember that? That this is who you are. And if you don't, and, and a lot of us forget it often, me included, find some friends. Give them permission to lovingly remind you of that regularly. Invite them into that. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, do you want that? Is this stable, durable, freeing identity? Is that something that you want? There's literally nothing to do except put your trust in Jesus. That's it. Nothing else. Would you pray with me?